And let's take our Bibles and turn back to Revelation chapter number 8. And while you're turning there, we'll go ahead and dismiss our children's for, uh, children for Children's Church. And so you can meet um, the workers at the back and out back of the balcony as well too. Revelation chapter number 8. Thank you for that wonderful music. And i uh, gotten a couple of remarks this week. Some people were saying, uh, I'm just going to come on Sunday just to see how you're going to cover four chapters in one sermon. And uh, so if you're here for that today, don't worry, we should be done about four and get you home in time for the Super Bowl. So today I want to just kind of give us an overview uh, how I do this. We'll just kind of talk to you, talk through Revelation 8, 9, 10, and 11. Uh, the uh, trumpet judgments, and then I'll come back on top of that a little bit later in the sermon and try and give us some practical application from this scripture of how we want to uh, take what we learn here and live in the world that God has called us to live in uh, in this day and time. So Revelation chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11, would you join me for a word of prayer? Our Father, uh, we do come back again and we, we thank you for your word and be my prayer, Lord, that you'd help me to think clearly, speak in such a way that would be honoring to your word. It's very difficult to worship alongside of all of the people in this room and say how holy you are and then think for a moment we could stand in our own power. And so I pray, Lord, that as we break the word of life to the congregation that's here today, that they would see right on through me and into the cross and into the Word, and that Your Spirit would take the Word and collide inside of the hearts of each and every person here today, and that You would teach us not merely about Revelation 8-11, through but how to take the Word of God and live that out in such a way that You'd be honored in the way that we live and that we would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that if there's somebody here today that doesn't know You as Savior and Lord, that that they would come to know You today. That You'd save them from their sins and give them new life. And we'll thank You for all that You do. For it is in the name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen. You know, as you look through the Bible, I think that you find the very first sound in all of the Bible is the very voice of the living God of heaven. In Genesis chapter number 1, the Bible says, In the beginning God was there, and He creates the whole world. He makes it perfect. He makes it right. He makes it good. The very first sound in all the Bible is the voice of God, and the second sound in all the Bible is Adam and Eve messing everything up in the Garden of Eden for us, right? Now, lest you think for a moment that you would have done better than Adam and Eve, I assure you, you're not perfect, and you wouldn't either. Adam and Eve are in the garden and God makes everything perfect. And Adam and Eve, what do they do? They believe that they can be their own gods rather than worshiping and trusting in the God of heaven. And when they make that sound of rebellion against God, it spills over into this cascading waterfall of humanity. And the rest of the Scripture is filled with people who cry out in denial against the very God of heaven. The whole Bible tells that story in all of humanity. That sound culminates when you get to the cross. And what do they say when Jesus is on the cross? We'll not have this man rule over us. Once again, there's another sound. 
God speaks, but this time instead of the creative act there in the Garden of Eden, it is the new creation of the cross. Jesus is on the cross and He cries out in the darkness, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Jesus, once again, God incarnate, speaks into all of creation the sound of new creation that any human being that puts their faith and trust their whole life in Jesus, that they could have new life. What do we do? We're no better than Adam and Eve. We're the same as they are. And from the cross until this very morning, the sound of the Scripture and the sound of all of our heart is denial and rejection of Jesus. Sure, there are people that come to faith in Christ. and There are many of you in here today that have come to repentance and faith in Jesus. You've given your life over to the sound of the Gospel. But around the world, by and large, the whole world turns and rejects the sound of the cross of Jesus. So what do we have in Revelation chapter 8 through 11? We have the final sound. We have the eerie sounds of judgment. These trumpet judgments is God coming to reckon with us and saying, I want you to understand that I created the world and you sinned. I gave you a Savior and you've rejected Him. And if you continue to reject Jesus, that there will come a day in which the warning sounds of God's eerie, deadly, ominous judgment shall come upon the whole world. And from the time of the ascension of Jesus until this very morning, God's judgment is being poured out upon the unbelieving world. And God is setting to rights the world through judgment. And the question for all of us today is, whose side are you on? His side or your side? These chapters here give us these sounds And let me just kind of maybe roll them out to you in a survey kind of way. The very first sound that you see in chapter number 8, verse 1 through 5, is really the absence of sound. It is that eerie silence that is in heaven, right? I I grew up in South Florida, and about uh, I used to do uh, uh, pest control, and I remember I would be about uh, Apollo Beach area in the middle of the hot afternoon, sunny day, and and, and it would just be muggy, and I would park my my truck up under in the mid-afternoon, under a tree by this little man-made lake and there'd be a nice breeze. Now it was never a cool breeze in Florida but this nice breeze would roll in and it'd get real quiet and for a moment you might think everything was okay but do you know what that really was? It was the calm before the storm. Torrential downfall, water just pouring out and that's exactly what's going on in the first five verses of chapter number eight. It is the sound of silence. And in heaven, it, here's what's going on. All of the prayers of God's people have finally ascended into heaven. And the prayers of God's people evoke the wrath of God to come and be poured out upon all of the world that denies Jesus Christ. What's the next sound you see? Well, look back in your Bible, verse 6 through verse number 12 of chapter number 8. It is the first four trumpets. We'll get to the other two uh, and the last one in a minute. But uh, the rest of chapter number 8 gives you the next four trumpet judgments. And what you need to understand, maybe two things about those trumpet judgments in uh, chapter number 8. The first is this. All of those trumpet judgments, the first four of them, are poured out on the natural realm, the natural world. The earth, the sky, the mountains, the creation. The first four trumpets are the judgment of the earth, physical, natural world. And then you need to understand that 
that it is also, did you see when you're reading where it says a third of the trees and a third of the grass and a third of this, and you're like, wait a minute, am I reading Revelation for, you know, trigonometry or algebra or what's going on here? I see what's going on there when it says a third of this and a third of that is it's simply trying to tell you that it's not a total destruction. The, the judgment here is not complete as of yet. And even in God's wrathful judgment, there is always a tinge of mercy that comes behind. So that even when God is pouring out His judgment upon the natural world, there is always a place for mercy for those who repent of their sin and turn to Jesus Christ by faith. Let me back up for a minute and just give you this by way of a premature application. I want you to understand those first four trumpets there, that eerie sound of these trumpets pouring out upon the natural world. From the time of Christ until today, God has been pouring out His judgment by way of the natural world. The hurricanes and the tornadoes and the earthquakes and the eruption of volcanoes and all of the natural order of the world is a part of God's judgment upon the unbelieving world. For the Bible says in Romans that even the world, the earth, groans until the people of God are made perfect and bring righteousness to the world. And when you understand that, what you should understand it is it is to be understood universally and not locally. For instance, when you see of brush fires that are tearing up somewhere in uh, Southern California, don't ever say God has brought fire on Southern California because they're evil. Or when you see a tsunami in Japan, you don't say God brings a tsunami upon Japan because they're evil God-haters. No, that is localizing the judgment. But what you can say is that the natural order of the world is not the way that it should be. And that is a part of God's judgment upon the world until human beings cry out for mercy and come back to the Lord of the harvest and put their faith in Jesus Christ. But even in the midst of all of the judgment of the world, it's never as bad as it could be in the eyes of God. And God gives people in this world, you and me, all of us, opportunities to repent and turn from our sin. Chapter number 9, really, at the end of chapter uh, number 8, ends with that really odd kind of verse, right? The eagles flying through heaven and speaking. Not sure when the last time you saw a speaking eagle, but it says, hey, there's three more woes that are to come. So chapter number 9 gives you uh, judgment or trumpet number 5 and number 6. And the easiest way to remember the trumpet 5 and 6 is trumpet 5 deals with demons and trumpet 6 deals with destruction. All right, you like how I get the alliteration there for you? Demons and destruction. And uh, to be honest with you, chapter 9 might be the creepiest chapter in the entire Bible. Am I the only one that read that this week? Did y'all not read chapter number 9? Is that not the weirdest chapter? All this medical, metaphorical language of uh, an angel goes down to the pit and unlocks it. And here come these wild locusts that have the tails of scorpions and, uh, and the hair of a woman and the teeth of a lion. And they, they, they sting uh, humankind so that for five months they kind of try and kill themselves and they're not even able to. And I read that and I'm, let, let me tell you one application. Don't want to read chapter 9 of Revelation at midnight by yourself, all right? I'm just saying. 
If you're alone by yourself, I would not read chapter 9. I mean, it is absolutely bizarre. It is incredible. Uh, that metaphorical language is there for a purpose, and we'll get to that for a minute. And then you get to the end of chapter 9, and here is this, uh, this sixth trumpet, right, that comes, and the angels unleash all of the war and the chaos upon the world. And so what do we want to understand by that? Well, we'll come back in a minute. I'll give some application, but just simply to say that there are demons in this world. The powers of darkness are are real. There are people that commit evil atrocities and why? When you look at it, you say how in the world could um, they, how, how in the world could they kill and rape and maim these little children around the world? How could they burn people alive in cages? How could Adolf Hitler and the Third Reich annihilate six million Jews at one time? Because of the powers of darkness and the demons that exist in this world. My dear friends, we live in a world that tries to tell us that what is natural and what is only seen by the hard sciences is the only thing that exists. And what I'm here to tell you is that the Scripture and even your own life testifies that there is far more to life than what you can put inside of a test tube. I'll deal with that in a minute. Chapter number 10 operates the same way that chapter number 7 did when we dealt with the seal judgments. Do you remember the end of chapter number 6 when we were dealing with the seals and there was destruction and chaos and pain and annihilation everywhere and you get to chapter 7 and you're like warming up, God's about to pour out even more and what happens at the end when you get to chapter 7? There's this lull. And in fact, destruction doesn't keep going there's an interlude where God talks about the protection of His people on earth and the exaltation of His people in heaven and He sets everything to right. That's the same thing that happens in chapter number 10 through chapter number 11, verse number 14. That is the sound. That is the sound of the angel and the prophets. You remember? And for some of you that like Bible study, just take a look at the contrast between the angel of chapter number 9 in the fifth seal that comes down and looses from the bottomless pit those terrible demons and then look at the angel of chapter number 10 that comes down from heaven and he has one foot on the sea and one foot on the land and he has this rainbow that's about him and let me tell you something I really wish it was Jesus and it looks a lot like Jesus but in my biblical interpretation this week I got to tell you I don't think it's Jesus all right and now here in this church when we preach and teach we try to do exegesis not extra Jesus all right you can't find Jesus where he ain't but this angel comes down and what does he say to John at the end of chapter number 10? He says, listen, I want you to come and take the little scroll that's from my hand and I want you to eat it and it'll be sweet in your mouth but bitter in your stomach. You say, what in the world is going on that? It just simply means that when the gospel of Jesus Christ is received by unbelieving people, that it is sweet in the mouth. It quenches the thirst. It takes away the hunger. Jesus satisfies all of the needs of mankind that repent and come to Him. But once we have believed on Jesus, be assured that to walk with Him is suffering. For the Apostle Paul said, I grant it not only a privilege to receive Jesus, but also to suffer with Him. And if you want to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have to understand that He will quench all of the thirst. He will give you the food that you need, but to serve Jesus means that you're going to have to live a life that it might mean that you don't, you're passed over for a promotion. It might mean that it's awkward at family reunions. It might mean that you have to put yourself out there and do something for Christ that might marginalize you in this life. Yea, even it might be someday in this country that we experience persecution that our brothers and sisters see around the world. 
And then chapter number 11, verse 1 through 14, right? There's that, uh, there's that sneaky little thing there about the measuring of the city and the temple and these two witnesses that go out. Pastor Steve, what is that? All right? So the measuring of the temple there and, and the city, that operates the same way that uh, God sealing the 144,000 did in chapter number 7. Remember I told you it's not talking about some ethnic Jewish group. It's talking about the church, and that means God's ownership, God's sealing. These are God's people, and even in the midst of persecution and tribulation, nobody will get to God's people. It's the same way the apostle is told there in chapter number 11, hey, measure out the temple, measure out the city, and here's what I want you to know, even though annihilation and destruction and wickedness is all around you, you will always have a place in my temple. Why? Because the people of God are the New Testament temple of God. He no longer dwells in the house that's built with hands. He dwells in the church. What about the two witnesses? Well, uh, some interpreters, good Bible scholars might say that that's, uh, that's a depiction there of Elijah and Moses or, oh, let me see, man, there's a whole bunch of them. Some people say Elijah and Moses, Elijah and Enoch, I don't know, several, those kinds of things, different people in the Bible. Who, who are these two witnesses? I think probably the best way to understand that is just in simple terms that when Jesus called his apostles, right, in the church in embryo form, how did he tell them to go out? Two by two. Those two witnesses are simply a personification of the church and the tribulation that go into all the world and preach and teach the gospel in the midst of all of the world rejecting Jesus. We keep preaching, we keep loving, we keep giving the word of God. And what happens? Sometimes they kill us. Sometimes they stand in the street and laugh at us. But what does the end of that section say? That we have the resurrection power of Jesus that raises us up again. And glory to God, there shall come a day when we shall all be with the Lord in heaven. Amen and amen. The last sound, and then I'll move to a little bit of application because I can see some of your eyes are a little glazed over at this point. Chapter number 11, verse number 15, I think through verse number 19 is this glorious, almost hymn-like language where it talks about the fact that uh, the kingdoms of this world and all their people, that Jesus shall be made the ruler and the reigner over all of the nations of the world. And it talks about that covenant there and the, the, uh, inner, the, the inner sanctuary and the Ark of the Covenant. And what is all of that about? It just simply means that the promised Messiah, the Lord Jesus, Christ shall rule and reign over all the earth in the very end. Amen and amen. There's your trumpet judgments for you. I got most of them out, right? So I probably made things as clear as mud for you. So let me back up and maybe just talk a little bit about application for a couple minutes. This week I intentionally, you know, I knew this section of Scripture is difficult and tough, and so I, I just wanted to see what all goes on in my life and how we could make that work. And so I just started jotting down this week different conversations that I had. And so I talked with somebody this week who last Sunday were sitting in church and went home, and when they got home, they realized that their home had been broken into and their stuff was stolen. I spoke to a person this week who found out that their spouse, spouse has stage 4 cancer now. I spoke to a man this week whose friend just passed away of esophageal cancer. I spoke to somebody else who had failed a math class twice before 
and had a math test on Wednesday and was scared out of their boots to take it. I talked with Hallie Frazier in her home, who's one of our eldest members here. She's almost 93, and she eats toast and bacon and Mountain Dew every morning. (laughs) And I come to a text like this today, and I say, Sweet Lord, how do we apply this in the lives of people that are hurting, that are frustrated, that are lost, that need help raising children, that need help at the job in relationships with each other? How, what do we find in this text that helps us to apply God's Word to our lives? Well, I'm just going to maybe give you three today. So look back at chapter number 8. Look at verse number 3. Another angel came and stood on the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints of the golden altar which was before the throne of God. Here's the first application that I want to make to us today. I want to say that we need to be a kind of people that are praying before the God of heaven. Amen? Do you see where these people... I want, I want you to know today as believers, hey, I just want to encourage all of us today, God hears your prayers. God keeps your prayers. They haven't gone out into silence. They aren't, they aren't just hitting the ceiling and bouncing back down. When you pray, God hears. When you pray, God cares. When you pray, God wants to answer and God will answer. Where are these prayers? These prayers are on the altars. Robert Mounds says that what we learn from this passage is that these prayers are upon the altar and every true and good prayer life is a prayer life of sacrifice. And I want to ask all of us today, are you sacrificing in your prayer life? Are you sacrificing time and effort and attention and focus and good things? And are you are moving away from that and dedicating parts of your life to really getting before God and praying for your own holiness and your own heart and your own life and your family and your friends and your church and this nation and the lost and evangelism around the world. I don't care whether you're 9 or 90. Are you praying? Are you sacrificially praying to the God of heaven? We want the Lord to move in this church, right? We want God to save unbelievers. There are people here this morning and you're lost and we are praying and begging and pleading and calling to heaven that God would interrupt inside of your life and save you from the pain and misery and heartache and judgment that is to come. Do you pray like that? Do you pray with your soul? Do you pray before the throne of heaven? Look what it says back there. It says that uh, our prayers are the incense on the altar. You know what incense is? It's beaten together spices until it gets almost to a powder and then they toss it upon burning coals and it makes this cloud of fragrance. And that is our prayers, that fragrance that goes up to God. Can I just say this? Maybe I can put it this way. God likes the way His people smell when we pray. When my wife puts on that warm vanilla butter sugar lotion or that cherry blossom stuff, man, I'm telling you, I just walk around, I like it. 
I'm telling you, every man in here, let me tell you something. You know, you know the reason why they make perfume? Men like perfume. When we pray and pour our heart out to God, you know what you need to do? Take your wheelbarrow full of junk and just take it up to the altar and dump it out and say, God, here it is. You want to know the way you pray is the way a child brings a broken toy to its dad with expectation that dad can just fix it. Dads can't fix everything, but God can fix it. Do you pray like that? Do you pray with expectation? Do you pray giving your whole heart and life to Him? Let me make a second application today for you. I'm going to try my best to kind of hit that creepy chapter in chapter 9 and see if I can say something to that. When I was in junior high, I was in a Bible class, and the teacher that taught the class, he was a great man. I love Mr. Coleman. He was a good man. His view was that every last word of it was literal. And, uh, and so I never got a category for metaphorical language and that things could like be teaching you some big larger picture. And I remember I was in Bible class one day and that whole, that whole place I read it where it said that people will try to die and they'll not be able to die. And I remember thinking in my little, uh, you know, eighth grade head, I mean, I, I wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed, but I remember thinking, you mean if some dude jumps off the Empire State Building, he won't die? <laughs> Mr. Coleman, nope. He won't die. I said, well, what happens to you? He said, well, you'll break every bone in your body, but you won't die. Oh, gee whiz, that's terrible, man. That might have been the first time in my life that I realized there might be a slightly different way to come about interpreting and looking at some of these verses. You know, in eighth grade, I didn't have a category for real demon activity. In eighth grade, I didn't know that I didn't know about demons of addiction, sex and drugs and alcohol and pornography and relationships. I didn't know that there were demons strong enough to wrap their tentacles around the soul of a human being and plunge them into addiction to the point that they would lose their family and lose their job. And then those demons would relent just enough to let that person go into rehab or AA or some discipleship program and play with them long enough to, for them to feel like they were making some sort of recovery only just to tackle them again when they were at their weakest and drive them back into depression and bipolar and frustration. I didn't know there were demons in the world that would crawl into the heads of women and force them to stay in relationships that were abusive. I didn't know that there were demons that would crawl inside of teenage girls, cause them to do and think crazy and wildly bad thoughts about their own life and their own body because they saw some airbrushed model on a magazine somewhere and they thought that that was the true image of beauty. I didn't know that there were demons that crawled inside of the minds of every human being and made us have wicked and nasty and bad thoughts that come just like that. And that we would never share any of that with anybody. Fearful that they might think we're crazy. 
only to know that every other person in this room struggles with the same. What's the answer? Look back down at the text, if you would, at chapter number 9. Look after all of the demons and all the destruction. Look at verse number 20 and 21 at the repetition of the phrase, and you'll see what the problem is. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship uh, demons and the idols of uh, gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood which came neither to see nor to walk. And look at the repetition in verse 21. And they did not repent. You want to know what the answer is to the demons that haunt every human being in the world? Whether you're lost or whether you're saved, whether you're good or whether you're bad, it is to bow the knee of your heart and turn from yourself, trusting yourself and all that you know, and to say, Lord Jesus, I need you. I come to you. I give you my heart. I give you my life. Save me. Cleanse me. Help me. If you're lost, call to Jesus and He'll save you. And if you're saved and you're struggling with one of those demons I mentioned, come talk to me. Because it is an ongoing repentance, turning away from yourself, turning to Jesus, and walking with Him and allowing Him to change your life. Let me make one last application and we'll finish for today. Some of this last one is a bit of instruction and a bit of application. So for those of you that are reading the book of Revelation, and I hear sometimes people say, man, I'm more confused now than when I started. Maybe give you a little bit of help, a way to get your mind around it. And you won't totally. We've got to work on this. But look, we got, you know, you got another 50 years or whatever to keep working on this. So when you read Revelation, you don't want to see it sequentially or chronologically so much. Okay? That's where you're going to run into trouble. If you start saying, okay, when does the, when does the sixth seal open and when does the first trumpet begin and where does this happen? I mean, you're going to get all tied up like a, uh, a chain of DNA. You're going to be, what in the world? And when, I thought I read that there and now this is happening. And I thought, uh, when, what a third of this and a fourth of that and a sixteenth of that and a twenty-second of this. And you're, going to, you're going to drive yourself nuts if you look at it sequentially and chronologically. I think what's best is to understand that what's going on here is really about four sets of seven. It's just a, it's what I call it is the instant replay view of the book of Revelation. So let me explain to you what I mean. It's telling you the same story in several different ways. It's the history of the world and the culmination of Christ winning everything. So, you remember chapters 1 through 3? What do we begin with? A vision of Jesus Christ, then all the churches are preserved and excelling inside of the tribulation. You get to the end of Revelation chapter 3, and the Bible says, for He has overcome, and He stands at the door and knocks. Yes, Christ is the victor. And then we start the same thing again. Chapter 4 to chapter number 7 is the seal judgments. Where does it 
it begin? A vision of Christ upon the throne and then the outpouring of judgment and terror upon the unbelieving world. And then what do you have in chapter 7? The preservation of the church and the proclamation of believers. And where does it take you to? The end of chapter number 7. That Christ will wipe away all tears from their eyes. You're like, yes, He wins it all. Chapter 8 through 11, it's the same story just from a different perspective. Where does it begin? It begins in heaven with the prayers of the saints and then it goes into the massive destruction and terror that's poured out upon the unbelieving world and then the church is preserved and proclaiming within that tribulation and where does it end? Read the end of chapter number 11. It looks the same as the end of chapter number 7 and the same as the end of chapter number 3. Christ wins. What's the application? See what God is doing in the world. And ask yourself, am I trusting Him? And am I participating with Him? When you get a handle on what God is doing in the world, that we are to be proclaiming the gospel and that God is preserving us and no matter what tribulation goes on around, God in Christ will have the victory. I want you to understand you can trust Him with the future and you can trust Him with your family. And get on mission with Him. The people around us are lost and undone without Jesus. And the terrible eerie sounds of judgment are coming upon the world. Are you sharing your testimony? Sharing the gospel? Inviting folks to come hear about Jesus? Praying for unbelievers? And growing together in the body of Christ? Just bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Our heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Hey, I, I just want to tell you maybe a couple things today. Hey, if you're here today and you are a believer, I want to encourage you to strengthen your prayer life. Go home today and this week and commit before the Holy Spirit of God. Just say, Lord, I want to pray every day. You don't have to be the greatest prayer warrior. Just a little bit every day. I want to grow in my prayer life. If you're here today and you're struggling with some of the demons that I said or maybe ones that nobody here knows about, I want to tell you the answer is to repent, to turn from yourself and turn to Jesus. If you're lost, come. We can help you to turn to Jesus. And if you're saved, right where you are, give up and ask Jesus to come in and to help you to conquer those sins and to trust Him. And for all of us here today, Christ wins. So trust Him with the future. Trust Him with your family. And tell everyone that you can about Him. Just stand with me this morning.